What is it that writers mean by the word voice? And how does this enigmatic or perhaps even tangential term affect what it is we're after when composing a story? Is it made of tone, pitch, tenor, or style? Is it made of tics, idiosyncrasies, grammar, or a certain rhetorical flourish? And if we don't know what it is that voice forms, how can we practice? In today's 11th hour, Hugh Ferrer will discuss this enigmatic idea and how to identify or recognize such an obscure so-called element of craft, as well as how we might develop or cultivate a piece of our own if a voice is something we're after. Hugh Ferrer is the senior editor at the Iowa Review and the associate director of the University of Iowa International Writing Program. He also teaches here at the University of Iowa, and we're thrilled to welcome him here today. So let's give him a round of applause. That's great. There's always a, there's a feeling of having something pinned on you, that corsage moment at the beginning of the talk. I don't know if it should make me more comfortable or more nervous. Um, thank you. Welcome. welcome. Uh, I want to... Well, I'm glad there's... there's, there's there's people here, obviously. Uh, we're a small group, so I'm going to move back and forth between my notes. I'm going to lose track halfway between, sometimes trying to make sure we're connecting and making sure that I'm getting to what I want to get to. Uh, I'm going to start by giving you a just some brief background about why I come to this. It seems like voice should be something that we know inherently what it is. We each have vocal cords. You know, we hear find, you should find your voice uh, when you're a young writer. Maybe even when you're a middle-aged writer like me, you're still thinking about it. Um, and so I was, teach, I was going to teach a class on style, and I thought I'd better figure out what the difference is so that I'm teaching the student's style and not voice. And when I started to think about what voice was, I realized I, I really couldn't differentiate it from style, and I began to worry that it was only style. You know, and that there was no such thing as voice. And I went and looked in a bunch of textbooks, and I didn't see it in the textbooks for fiction writing, and that kind of worried me. Um, I was like, why is this term around if I haven't ever, you know, there's all these elements of craft, and we don't ever see it. And then I thought, well, maybe it's a, it's a holdover. Maybe it's a, an echo from some previous time, a different way of thinking about how to write. And I thought, maybe the poets will know what it is, maybe it's a more vocal term, maybe it has to do with lyricism. And so then I went and started talking to all the poets that I could uh, buttonhole and felt comfortable asking a question like that too. And the answers I got from the poets were really revealing because they ranged from defining voice in a way that included just about everything that went into poetry, as far as I could understand, all the way to Voice isn't something I think about. You know, voice doesn't have any place in my poetics. Voice is not something that I look for in contemporary poets. It doesn't exist. So I thought, oh, hell. You know, that, that's a great help. You know, it, what it does, though, is it reveals a certain thing. There's this term that we've got that may or may not be real. It may be a metaphor. It may be something that people use to mean a lot of things. And it reminds us that creative writing is a young art, uh, or I should say a young discipline. 
and it's still trying to figure out what its terms are and how best to teach it to, to writers. So where do those, what terms are we going to use? Um, the only place I could find steady reference to voice was in uh, books of rhetoric. Uh, the English departments are not completely, have not completely abandoned this idea. And it makes sense to think of it as a term of rhetoric because rhetoric, which is the art of persuasion, assumes that a writer or a speaker is trying to communicate something directly to a listener or a reader and uh, to convince them of something, to persuade them of something, to uh, win them over to a side, to show them an argument. So I, a lot of times I would see style and voice used synonymously, but I also felt like there was a voice of the speaker that uh, professors of rhetoric uh, believed in. So I felt like I was making a little headway. One option, of course, and it would end, end the talk early and, and, and uh, allow us to all go to lunch, would be to abandon the concept of voice and to just go with the flow and to just say, you know, maybe it doesn't mean anything and we can, we can make do with style and not, not, not worry about voice. Maybe we'll just end that whole thing. You don't need to find your voice. We're done. Okay? That would be all right. Uh, and really, the more I looked at it, we would be going with a general flow that's been happening for decades. I mean, at least since 1940s, in the 1940s. All right? Um, let me give you a quick, a, a quick summary of what, what happened in literature and criticism, uh, what's happening at that time. There's a school of criticism called, uh, well, you have modernism, and in modernism, you have a school of criticism called uh, New Criticism. And it, it's got some famous names and some people that only specialists will have heard of. But their general argument was, you can't, uh, you can't as a reader, know anything about the author. There's nothing you're going to see on a written page that's going to allow you to draw conclusions about the author. Okay? There is a gap there. You read a sentence and you want to attribute it to somebody, but whoever you're trying to attribute it to, it's too much you, it's too much make-believe. Okay? This would eventually evolve um, into... This, this idea carries on, and I'll get to that in a second. Meanwhile, authors are doing the same thing. It's, it's a traumatic century. There's been a lot of wars. Uh, there's been a lot of dissolution of empire. There's a lot of fracturing of identity going on. And authors are not necessarily being straightforward anymore. There's a ton of literature out there that's suddenly being produced that presents a lot of irony, presents a lot of unreliability, uh, makes it very unclear to a reader who the author is, or, where, or even where the author is in a piece. There's poetry movements that don't want to be heard, uh, that are being elliptical in some way, that's leaving more and more information out. Poetry, uh, like T.S. Eliot's, that's taking place completely in a range of voices so that you can't identify where T.S. Eliot is. Okay? So on the one hand, you have a, a critical mechanism that's saying, don't bother trying to find the author. On the other hand, you've got authors that say, don't bother looking for me. All right? And this keeps building up steam through the 50s and 60s, uh, at which point French theorists take it up and give it the, the uh, 
a term that, that's been handed down to us now is the death of the author. It's the same ideas. You can't, you can't know the author. Death of the author sounds better in French, by the way. It's a much catchier sound. It, it strikes us as a little... All right? So that inheritance is to say, that why do I go into all that? Because at the same time these movements were going on, both in literature and in the way literature was read by the experts, it's the same exact time the creative writing was becoming a field. It was the same period of time in which the workshop, as a way of talking about your writing, was being developed. Okay? And in a workshop, I don't know, how many of you have been in a workshop? How many of you have been in a workshop were supposed to stay silent while your work was being discussed? All right, that's new criticism. Okay, that is the legacy of new criticism. That is the gap. You are not supposed to be able to give any feedback, any guidance as the author to a reader. You have to sit there and listen to a bunch of readers, take what they can from your work, okay? Which is harrowing, right? I mean, it's awful. No, 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 you got it wrong. No, she's, it's a woman. Yeah. All right? Hey, you know, that dems the breaks. Um, and when I was first introduced to that, I wasn't introduced to it as the idea that, no, 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 this is, this is part of a certain critical heritage that we're all going to adopt. I was introduced to it as, that's the market. You know, you're not going to be able to defend, you're not going to be able to defend your work once it's out there. You've got to send that baby out. Kick him out of the nest. All right, well, six of one, half dozen of the other. The fact is, is you've still got, you've still got a text that you as the author were trying to give directly to readers, and yet there's still a gap there. All right. Pause number one while I make sure I'm in my place. I'm right on the course. Uh, so, we have, now we've got the problem viewed a little clearer. On the one hand, we've got a term, voice, that insofar as we're talking about written words, words on a page, words that are silent, has got to be on some level metaphorical. And it's a metaphor that goes way back. Uh, St. Uh, Augustine talks about being blown away that Ambrose was reading without saying it aloud. You know? There is a text used to be a score for voice. You know, we're, it's, a, it's only a fairly modern phenomenon that we read silently. Okay, you used to get something and you'd read it aloud. Uh, or you'd move your lips and stuff. Turns out that when you still, when you read now, even if you don't move your lips, your, the nerves in your vocal cords are moving. Okay? Not moving, sorry. Firing. We'll leave it at that. So you have this metaphor that's got physiological, physiological roots in the way that we brought writing to us. Okay, so it seems like a good metaphor, right? Like it's useful. Um, and when we read, we could swear we hear a voice sometimes. You know, there are people we read and we 
especially the ones we really, maybe the ones we like best, are the ones who seem to be talking to us, the ones whose personality we can discern, where we could sort of swear there's an author there. Okay. So, big problem, right? We've got, on the one hand, all these, we've got new criticism and, and, and other things that tell us, actually, you really can't tell anything about the author, and yet we keep feeling like we're experiencing something like an author talking to us in certain kinds of writing. And so I think that's why we have, we have this word persisting, in an inco- but in an incoherent way. So this is the current, this is the current we're, we're working with. Uh, so, but we, I, I don't want to give up on voice. Just because I don't want to give up on anything that may be useful, I think, like I say, thinking about how creative writing can be taught, at least from the point of view of a teacher, means that we shouldn't give up on any term that can help us think about how writing works and therefore how we might teach it to students. So I'm I'm all for trying to see if there's a use for it, and I think there is, as a way of thinking about some of the things we do in our writing. All right? But we've still got this gap... The gap may be uncrossable. The gap between read, uh, writer and author, writer and reader, it may be uncrossable. All right. Let's take a look at some. Uh, let's take a look at some examples. All right. Just quickly, this is this is the uh, this is the French theorist from the '60s who. Um, who kind of coined this term, Death of the Author, though I say it goes back to the 40s. This is the opening of his, uh, of his essay, Death of the Author. And basically what he's saying is, look, there's this sentence. Uh, to, it's, it's, a, it's a loaded sentence, obviously, because it's describing a castrato who's disguised as woman. This was woman herself with her sudden fears, her irrational whims, her instinctive worries, her impetuous boldness, her fussings, and her delicious sensibility. It's a loaded thing to say. And he's saying... Who exactly should I be figuring out as saying it? Who is speaking in this manner? Who is, who is making these judgments? Is it the hero, bent on remaining ignorant of uh, the castrato? Is it Balzac, the individual, not the author, but the, the guy who goes and drinks 60 cups of coffee a day? And that's kind of true. Uh, combined with his philosophy of woman, is it Balzac, the author, professing literary ideas on femininity? Is it universal, universal wisdom? Is it romantic psychology? And we shall never know. Okay, so, so that's the starting point. That's, that's, that's critics, you know, you can read it as, if I read that, as, well, I've cut it off in just a way that makes him sound like he's feeling sorry for himself. The sentence actually, the sentence actually goes on quite a bit. Barth doesn't feel sorry for himself. Yeah. All right, but let me give you another, this is another sentence that gives us a, an idea of the gap that I'm talking about. This is Gratitude by Louise Glick, an American poet. <laughs> Those of you who are poets, don't you, don't you hate when, the, when, when word like, starts to say like that's ungrammatical or you've made mistakes? I just think that's so obnoxious. All right. All right, complicated, ironic poem here. Okay. Complicated in terms of some of the syntax, 
uh, not in terms of the overall images or how it's going to go about making them. It's not actually hard to, hard to read. I'll read this one aloud. I'm going to read some others. I'm going to let you guys read some others as we listen for voice. But do not think I am not grateful for your small kindness to me. I like small kindnesses. In fact, I actually prefer them to the more substantial kindness that is always eyeing you like a large animal on a rug until your whole life reduces to nothing but waking up morning after morning, cramped, and the bright sun shining on its tusks. All right? So, as readers, we, we might ask ourselves, how sincere are the opening lines? What do you think? Anybody, are they, since, are they perfectly sincere? Are they... Not at all. Not at all. Thank you, Carol. Yeah. Double negative. Do not think I am not grateful. That's slippery. I can, I can go down the road of multiple negatives, and I never come out. Um, so does that make the title sarcastic? By the way, did anybody read those two lines as sincere? Yeah. I think you can read them both ways. I think that they're I think that they're they're savagely ironic and they're also potentially sincere and those two exist simultaneously, you know, and they're both legitimate readings. Especially if you are just reading it. And you read it one way and then it flips and you can read it another way. There's a discrepancy between the language and what it means. There's a, and in that discrepancy, your mind starts to make, try to figure out how to solve the discrepancy. You know, that's the essence of irony. You know, it makes sense and it doesn't quite make sense on all particular levels. So how do I go ahead and make sense of it? Well, as soon as you can't tell whether it's sincere or ironic, you can't tell what the author exactly means or what the author is exactly doing, right? So that's the gap I'm talking about, right? You've created a space for the reader. It may be a rich space or it may be a hollow space, but it's still a gap between the author and the reader. It's a space that only the reader is existing in, in a way. The reader and the, the words on the page. Okay? I, I phrased it here. Is there, is there a discrepancy in the logic of the speakers preferring small kindnesses to large ones? There's a way in which she's dead sincere. Better this small kindness than that kind of large uh, kindness with its tusks, you know, that sits there preying upon me in some strange gift economy where I am totally indebted and trapped by your kindnesses. So there's a way in which it's perfectly sincere. But of course, it can't be completely sincere. Okay? So we could look at hundreds of examples like this, because as I said, it was, it was a predominant mode of literature for you know, most of the last century, uh, creating these spaces, these gaps for readers. So, oh gosh, that's terrible. Um, let me give you another example of this gap. One of my favorite, one of my favorite writers is Kurt Vonnegut. And um, I really liked how, uh, I love his narrators. There's a way in which they seem really, really earnest. They seem like straight shooting narrators. They have, he writes in a style uh, that's very easy for me to hear. He seems to talk straight to me. 
He's got a savage sense of the world, uh, but it's also brave, and it's able to laugh at certain kinds of ugliness and to move beyond it. And it's usually a very, very, not always like heroically brave, but enduring. Uh, there's an enduring quality to his narrators uh, at a very absurd time in history and from an, and a fairly absurd point of view. It's not the Kurt Vonnegut of his letters. This is, this is a letter from, I guess, 1965, right after he's moved to uh, Iowa City. Okay, and uh, it's a letter to his wife. So it's not, it's not a book for me to read. It's, I'm not quite sure why the permission for this collection of letters was actually given. But anyway, it says, Dear wife, some technical poop. We in Iowa City are on Central Standard Time, whereas most of the people around us are on Central Daylight Time. This means that until you go back on standard time, you will be three hours later than me. Uh, I will explain. When it is three o'clock here, it will be six. She's, right, she's on the East Coast, right? So this is, this is also, actually, it is kind of disturbing to me because the East Coast has always been one hour ahead to me, of me. And now I'm hearing that it can be as much as three hours ahead of me. I'm very bothered. Right? <laughs> when it is three o'clock here, it will be six o'clock there. If you call me at 10 p.m., it will only be seven here. After you go back on standard time, if you call me at 10 p.m., it will be eight here. I can't be any clearer than that. Tell Nanny, and then, when you need to know, ask her what the hell is going on with all this time business. Anyway, my phone isn't hooked up yet. When it is, I'll call you up and tell you what the number is. Ideally, you should call me most of the time. That way you can take advantage of cheap calling rates that won't be available to me until three hours later. <laughs> Just wait until it's six o'clock there, there, and we screw them good. <laughs> there, there's a way that that is Vonnegut, right? There's a way that the sentence structure is recognizable. There's the way that the... Uh, the, the absurdity of a certain situation is slightly recognizable as Vonnegut, but it's slightly more frustrated than the Vonnegut we're used to. It's not a Vonnegut that can transcend the difficulties, and in fact, many of the letters are a downright whinier uh, Vonnegut than I want to be around. You know, I, it's not the, you know, I don't want Vonnegut begging for publishing opportunities, which this book is filled with. You know? So I feel back, actually very closer I feel closer to him there than I now. I now I realize, you know, that the Vonnegut I'm seeing in the in the novels is a production. Okay. All right. We should get. Uh, we should make. We should make some headway because we've got a few. We're gonna. We, won't, we really want to see what's useful about all this. All right. Let's start with an obvious. It's an obvious. Captain, from, from the drawers of Captain Obvious. Uh, which, which, one, which one is easier to hear? <laughs> More importantly, why is this one so hard to hear? Large words, all caps. Sorry, I could have, I could have, I didn't do that because it's such small print, usually. Uh, fair enough. No, it's, it's harder to, it may be harder to read because of that. It's, it's harder to read because of the all cast, but it's, it's certainly harder to read because of the big words. So it's a legal disclaimer, so it's specifically meant for the readers to not have any ambiguity about what they're 
Yeah, and it's it's also to a certain degree not supposed to be heard aloud. There's a there's a real there's a real desire not to uh, not to address a person, but for us to hear a corporation, for us to hear the law. And we're not supposed to actually be able to speak the law in our head in a certain way. We're supposed to just obey it. You know, if we were supposed to be really engaged and in dialogue with the law, the law would be written in a way that we could understand. So it's actually, it's, and again, it's stylistic choices. It's not like, you know, if your uncle were a lawyer, it's not like your uncle couldn't put this into plain language. Or your aunt, or your niece. But they don't. So there are choices that can make things more readable. Obviously, even the, even the Dickens is becoming a little dated in terms of the voice. And as time goes on, it's going to be harder and harder to read him. Not because he hasn't created a syntax that's, that's easy and flowing, and most of the words there, but some of the, some of the things where some of the metaphors that are embedded in it are becoming, so we're losing touch with them. Okay, so we're talking now about what we could call the audible voice. And the background of this is what I said earlier, that your vocal cords are firing when you're reading. And if the reader gives you permission, you will try and hear sounds of what you're reading until the reader gets in the until the writer gets in the way. Sorry if I transposed something there. It feels like I made a mistake. There's intention here to make sure you can't read it smoothly, to take it up, to voice it to yourself. And there's every intention up there to make sure that you can hear. Word, you know, if your vocal cords are, you could hear it almost as spoken. Okay, and to the extent that a text sounds like it's spoken text, you're readier to make it into sounds. To the extent that it doesn't sound like spoken text, and these are fine differences, you're not going to be able to. All right. This is a long passage, sorry about that, but basically we've got, uh, it's a trifecta, because we've got the American poet Robert Bly tr talking about translating the German poet Rilke and using as his frame of reference the poet Robert Frost. So we really get to hear three different poets on this idea of what it is to create a spoken sound for the reader. I don't know that I can, but I'm sure there are people here who know how to do that. No, I, I yeah, no, I got there's people here who I just don't know what button to push. Okay, so this is from an essay that uh, a colleague of mine pointed out. Um, this is Robert Bly writing in 1982 about translating a single Rilke poem. Uh, and he talks about it in terms of eight stages, and we're going to jump right to stage four, which sounds bad in today's language. In the fourth stage, we translate the poem into American. That is, if we speak the American language. In England, we would translate it into spoken English. The idea that a great poem should be translated freshly every 20 years is rooted in an awareness of how fast the spoken language changes. We need the energy of spoken language as we try to keep a translation alive, just as we need the energy of written. 
the aim in translating this Roka poem is not street language, not slang as such, nor the speech rhythms of half-educated people, but rather the desperate living tone or fragrance that tells you a person now alive could have said the phrase. Okay, so you got, you got, you got to live in the times in which you're living. Robert Frost believed in such rhythms and wrote of them brilliantly. He called the fragrance sentence sound. And if you Google Robert Frost sound and sense, you'll get you'll get access to a lot of his writings on this. In the 19-teens, this was a very big, important part of how he was developing his poetics. Frost gives a few examples. And what, what we're talking about here is, is, is sentences that when you write them, if somebody heard them through a wall and couldn't even heard, hear the exact words, they'd still know the meaning. That's somehow embedded in the way the beat and the rhythm of the sentence is a kind of contemporary orality that the reader is a reader in your community, a reader who knows is part of the same speech group, is going to know what to do with. So even these sound a little dated now. The thing for me to do is to get right out of here. Or, never you say a thing like that to a man. Boy, New Hampshire in there. Uh, Robert Bly actually has to translate Frost from the 19-teens into American speech of the 1980s and says, in this decade it would be you can't say that to a man. Another example might be, John, you come on right, you come on right down here and do your work. Right? To the extent that we're American and we might, you know, that has a little regional bit to it, but we still know what to do with that. We know how to make it a, a spoken sentence. All right? We might end a poem, and a lot of the changes in my life go back to that decision. And that line would be English, but it would lack sentence sound. The phrasing with sentence sound would be, and that has made all the difference. Frost should use that line. All right, it isn't the rational mind that understands these distinctions, but the ear and the ear's memory. Yeah? Isn't Bly overlooking the fact that the road not taken is a formal poem that rhymes? Sure. We'll get to that. Great point. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an incredibly important point because no matter what you're doing as an author, you can create that spell of, of uh, having the reader hear, a sound, hear, hear it as though it's spoken. But part of what might lend something authority is that you're also speaking through an incredibly entrenched, formalized way of speaking, even as you're making it seem natural and contemporary. And one of the things we like about Frost is that he is, yeah, he's formal on the one hand, but he's also very uh, easy to read, and we can hear him speaking. So yeah, I don't see a contradiction there. Um, and really, he's just borrowing Frost's poetics here in terms of sound, uh, and he's not critiquing him as whether or not he's a successful poet in terms of form. Okay, very quickly, uh, Bly goes on to talk about the poem he's translating. So he's been translating this line from the German, and he's translated it over and over again, and he's, he's translated into raw English, and now he's moving it from like a literal translation of the German, and he's moved the verbs around so that they're not like word-for-word word of German, and he's trying to find the way to make it sound like American spoken English now. So he had the line, she receives the prize for her long and strenuous learning. And he says, it doesn't sound as if it were spoken language. Rarely in speech these days do we let a sentence go so long without a pause, and receives doesn't sound quite right to him, and everybody's ear is going to be different. So he says, instead of receives, let's try gets. So he's changing the line to she gets the prize, gets it after study, hard work. 
And that does. It sounds more like spoken England. Spoken American English. And as he said, my ear feels better now. Okay, so... Um, There's a part of this article that talks about the distinction between meter and beat, uh, what Donald Hall calls uh, goat's foot, which is the, uh, a larger beat that's taking place within uh, an extended sentence. That, uh, that pretty much sums up what I could say about it. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a poet, so, um, so I'm going to leave it there. But yeah, he is talking... The way spoken English works isn't metrical. It's not just iambic, but there's also rises and falls and stresses and and, and larger set other ways to build rhythm into it. Okay, and as and as these questions are revealing, if we start talking about sound, the sound of words and how the sound creates. Uh, how the sound either creates meaning or how the sound encourages the reader to create a certain kind of uh, uh, voice in the head, we open up all sorts of possibilities, and, and, and a lot of this is forking paths that we're not going to go down. Um, so I just want to make a couple points here. One is that uh, Bly, um sort of... It's, it, it's a little obvious right now, but if we speak, if we, you know, we want to translate the poem into American, he says. That is, if we speak American, and if we were uh, in England, that is to say, if we were writing for an English audience, we would want, if we wanted them to hear it as spoken, well, the easiest way for them to hear it as spoken would be to put it into an idiom that's more English. Okay, so we have this idea of idiom. And that's a fascinating thing, because when you're creating something and you're thinking, oh, I want the reader to hear it, you're also presuming that they will know the, speak, the way of speaking that you're trying to build. Okay, that the, in a sense that they will share your idiom. You know? So in all of those assumptions is an assumed community. The voice that you want to speak with, you know, I recognize Vonnegut implicitly because he speaks a certain kind of, you know, he, he goes for a certain kind of spokenness that I recognize and that I know what to do with. That Dickens is becoming increasingly a kind of English that I don't know what to do with. And as centuries, you know, that's how things pass out. Is you, One of the ways is they don't sound as fresh anymore. You don't know what to do. Your vocal cords don't know what to do with them all the time. There's syntaxes, there's grammar, there's vocabulary, there's sentence structure, there's registers, high and low, that you don't know what to do with anymore. Okay, so who's your, who's the chorus? You know, if I write something and you guys all vocalize it internally, we're all singing the same song. You know, and there's an assumed sort of chorus going on, and you join the chorus of all the people who read Vonnegut. When we read Vonnegut, we're all kind of on tune with Vonnegut. All right, but there's also ways of thinking about this that where you have uh, groups you're not a part of. And writing that brings you into another group brings you into another kind of spokenness than what you're normally used to, right? So this is the same for when we start talking about audible voice, it takes us into new places. Recently, uh, 
recently passed away, uh, Gwendolyn Brooks, her, one of her most famous poems, We Real Cool, The Pool Player, Seven at the Golden Shovel. How many of you can hear this clearly as a voice? Okay. We live in the wake of it. You know, at the time, this is more groundbreaking than it seems now. But this is a big crossover from one community to another. And one of the things we admire about Harlem Renaissance writers or writers from other ethnicities or minorities or groups who can make us hear how that group speaks by writing in such a way that we can speak it too and for a second we can enter that community. Okay, so as writers, what community are you bringing a reader into when you speak? When you, sorry, when you cast the spell in which speaking seems to occur. Okay? All right, so that's the first kind of voice we, we think about. So you're, you're using language, you're using syntax, you're using your ear to, uh, to make it easy for the reader to draw on their own experience of what's, what's being spoken to hear something. The next one's the more, I think, uh, bigger one. The, I'm just going to write in increasingly dark colors. Um, I will change colors. Maybe this is all very symbolic, right? The audible voice is the most subtle. Now we're going to get to the less subtle. Dramatic voice. At least one poet, when I asked her what she, what she, uh, what she thought uh, voice in poetry was, says it's the character of the poem. It's the persona of the poem. It's the, it's the personality that seems to inhabit the narrator or the the assumed eye of the poem. So we're going to look at a couple of examples of what that means. Oh, by the way, I, I have been totally uh, unfair to a major source in some of my thoughts. It's, uh, in all my research, I did find somebody, and these terms are coming from him, and he's got the very memorable name of Peter Elbow, which I love and now can't use in a story, but um, absolutely love it. Anyway, he wrote, he wrote extensively on this, and he... He was the one for me who took all these ideas that I'd been having. He's like one, basically saying, you know, why don't you group them into these categories? And it's been very useful. So I want to give him full credit. We're following. We're even taking some of his examples here. Take a minute. Take a minute to read this passage, and then tell me, tell me what you think about the person speaking. First of all, is it somewhat easy to hear it? I mean, literally in the audible voice sense? It's not, it's, not, it's not impossible to turn this into a spoken thing on some level. So, so what's this guy like? 
Which guy, Melville or Lawrence? Uh, Lawrence, the person speaking. Straight shooting? Yeah. Yeah. Condescending. Condescending? I see I hear a little condescension in there too. There is there is more going on, isn't there? There is there is there is a performance in this text on some level, so that whatever whatever we're whatever he's saying is not the whole thing. You know, we're hearing one we're hearing one set of statements, but it's such a dramatic voice, and I mean dramatic all the way to creating a uh, a mini scene, hand me the sugar, uh, you know, and talking to himself, or creating two voices in there, and so have it. So it's a voice that's actually talking to itself, talking with Melville, talking to somebody else, hand me the sugar, or talking to you as though you're there and could hand him the sugar, you know. So it's a voice that creates a little scene. So it's a very dramatic voice. It's also easy to hear. And yet there's something more going on. You know, like he's not saying something. Isn't he also subtly parodying Melville himself in this passage? Yes, or, yeah, I, I wonder too if he's parodying himself. I mean, I, part of the jealousy or, or other things, I think there's a, if there's anybody who's been accused of being overly serious and braying in their, in their fiction over time, you know, it's also D.H. Did you have? Okay, sorry. I don't want to be an auctioneer. Um, so there, but there's more going on there. And we'll come back to this idea of the split that we sense in a dramatic voice. Because so, so what's gone on here is that stylistically, there's been a bunch of moves, including short sentences, rhetorical questions, uh, different kinds of registers, different ways in which stylistically, D.H. Lawrence has written a piece in which we can see a character. And there's also been some choices that make it audible. Okay, and the two of them together sure do make us feel like we're listening to somebody. And just as our vocal cords are firing and we're ready to generate a voice, if we're given permission to, a spoken voice, if we, if we know what to do with the language we are reading in front of us, if the score, the musical score of the words, is something that we know what to do with, so too, if we're given permission to start creating a persona for the person behind the words, we will create that persona until we're told not to, until, we're, it's, until it's stymied in some way. Now, that doesn't mean that we know the author. It just means that the author's done a good job of giving us a way of hearing a voice, a voice that's partly in its audibility and partly in its uh, characteristics, its persona. Okay, we do need to look at this other poem, and then we're going to figure out some, um, some shortcuts to the end. This is the poem that Ann Sexton used to read at the beginning of every one of her public readings uh, called Her Kind. Maybe we'll read uh, the first two stanzas. I have gone out, a possessed witch, haunting the black air, braver at night. Dreaming evil, I have done my hitch over the plain houses, light by light. Lonely thing, twelve-fingered out of mind, a woman like that is not a woman quite. I have been her kind. I have found the warm caves in the woods, filled them with skillets, carvings, shelves, closets, silks, innumerable goods, 
Fix the summers, suppers for the worms and the elves. Whining, rearranging the disaligned. A woman like that is misunderstood. I have been her kind. Okay. Also a fairly audible voice. Obviously, I just gave it voice. And I have no problem doing so. Right? I'm not quite sight reading. I read it last night. Reread it last night. And so it's, it's a little fresh to me. But I think on the first read, it comes right up, right? Pretty much. All right. And there's a character behind these words. What would you say? Any thoughts about who she is? What kind of person this is? Perhaps a rather flamboyant, self-dramatizing person. Okay. There is a bit of there is there is something dramatical going on. Sure. There's certainly a willing. Yeah. The the, the image of the witch and uh, on the edge of things and in the cave. And then the witch, maybe we've done it an injustice. I have ridden in your cart driver, waved my nude arms at villages going by, learning the last bright roots, survivor, where your flames still bite my thigh, and my ribs crack where your wheels wind. A woman like that is not ashamed to die. I have been her kind. Definitely marginalized. Incredibly authoritative. There's a huge amount of confidence here, even if it's a, it's a slightly shattered confidence. It's in the syntax. The I, 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 the I have been, I have found, I have written. It's a very confident, it's a very confident language here. And it's also very formally confident, too. It's a very strict rhyme scheme. Repeated last line. So there's a formal confidence here too. At the same time, there is a fundamental split in the in the in the voice. There's a way in which, well, she can't. She's not really a witch, right? We we don't think we're actually listening to a witch because we're, you know, I have been her kind. Isn't the same I that's being burned at the stake, and there's there's some stuff going on here that's very very domestic. How almost. You know, very domestic, you know, kitchen work. So there's layers within this eye. So at the same time as we have a strong, dramatic voice, it's a split eye. There's two, there's at least two things going on. So again, we have that gap. Let's figure out where we're going to get to. Everything I've talked about so far is stuff that's going on in the reader's head based on clever or natural stylistic choices by a writer, right? You're a poet, you're a writer. You're you're making moves in such a way that the reader recognizes what you're writing as more spoken. And you're writing in such a way as a persona, a definite kind of persona, although it might be a complicated persona, begins to rise up for the reader. If it's a narrator or it's the voice of the poem. Okay. But haven't I really just said, I mean, where's the voice? Really? Aren't these all haven't I just fully argued and, and sort of said, well, here we are. We're we're back at style. It's all a bunch of stylistic choices. 
where do you come in? You know, what do you do as a writer? Because you have something to say, right? I mean, a lot of this, a lot of this starts with, with you wanting to say something. It's tough. All right, let me know, but I figured it out last night, I think. Just like, let me check my notes. <laughs> I guess one way to phrase the problem is just, you don't feel like a persona in, in your daily life, right? Like, why, why do you need to write with a persona to get something across? That, I mean, for some of us, that's... For, for some of us who, who don't like standing up here, as I, I have mixed feelings about it myself, um, why, why a persona? Why can't I just speak myself? Can't I be the persona? That's why I wanted to, that's why I got into writing. Right? I swear I have the answer here somewhere. Let's go back to the gap. One of the things that the, 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 the reason for talking about the gap is that critics and readers can't tell who the author is. And part of the reason, and, and, and writers aren't even trying to present a single self because part of what modernism was talking about was that we are not single, unified, unfragmented, consistent things. Our feelings might persist, our traumas might persist, our urge to, to write, our urges in a, in a number of ways might, might persist and transcend through time. But sure enough, I, sh I sure talk differently. I talk differently at work than I talk to my mom on the phone. You know, it's like a different, a whole different complex of people. You know, I'm just, I, I'm a whole complex of people. Sometimes I'm talking from the heart and sometimes I'm quoting Peter Elbow. So maybe we're not one single solitary thing. And despite, and even though you want to write, you're actually more, maybe, than one thing. So that's one possibility. That you, we actually need to look at, at ways to create dramatic voice and create an audible voice because you need to look at more complicated ways to actually get across more of who you are. Because you're not unitary. You're not single. You're not a stone passing through this life. You change. You're inheriting a lot of things. Your part, you know, technology is increasing. How many voices you're hearing? How many little subcultures you're a part of? And you're digesting all of that. And you're trying to make sense of it. And and this was going on throughout the 20th century. And it's one of the reasons artists were really changing how they wrote because they were getting bombarded with technology too. The other thing to keep in mind when you're when you're asking yourself well, why can't I just uh, why can't I just be myself is because Remember, voice is a metaphor. The, the, the words on the language have got so much less capability than a spoken voice. You can't change the volume of the words on the page, unless I write in all caps. You know, but, uh, you know I can't necessarily control how the reader hears the pitch or the timbre. Uh, there's a couple other... I mean, it goes on and on. All the things I can do, the subtle changes in tone... All the things that I can do when I'm speaking to you, the way I can adjust because I can hear how you're listening, can't do any of that on the written page. So you're on your side of this gap. You're a, re you're a writer, and you want to get across. 
you don't necessarily have to start by you don't have to start by assuming like a complicated multi-voiced persona to get going. You can still write as you hear it. You know, that's a, that's called a it's a first draft. But this is, you know, I'm I'm giving you the second draft as I go. You can work your way into the gap. What what you need though is a sense of urgency. A sense of trying to get as much of yourself into the work as possible. To speak as wholly as possible in what you are trying to say. And you will find that as you try and get more and more of yourself into something, you may need a persona. You may need irony. You may need uh, a slight unreliability. You may need to lie a little bit to get more of yourself in, so that because at, at one and the same time there are levels, and we are more than one thing. So we go back to that uh, we go back to that Lawrence passage, you know, and there's a way in which there's a lot going on, but there's this other thing going on too, which is like crap, you know, like he brays, I bray, you know, I better, you know, I'll shoot him down. And that's why I don't feel as much urgency in that as I feel in, uh, say, this. This feels to me like a very urgent work. For all its duplicity and all its splitting, I feel like there's a great deal of the author trying to express herself. I feel the pressure of the author on the other side of this. I may not be able to cross the gap. I may not be able to say I know who Anne Sexton is, but I can feel her there. Do you know what I mean? Through the... Through the persona, on the other side of it, I can feel her pressing on this particular thing. And here's the thing, and this is where style falls short. If you had nothing but style, the reader wouldn't listen to you. No matter what we want to say about new criticism and the death of the author and the gap between the reader and the writer and all the stuff we can talk about style that helps control what the reader is reading, if it's only style... If there isn't a person, a complicated person, trying to reach me from the other side of the gap, the writing is going to feel hollow. It's just going to feel like stylistic moves. All right. We'll leave it there. If there's questions, we have a few minutes. Boom. So it, I, I get the sense that I, I get the sense of the gap. Yeah. I get the sense that the writer having to be brave enough to enter the gap with some degree of honesty yeah. to engage the reader. Yeah. Is that a reasonable thing to get out of That is certainly, I mean, the other, what, a couple things to get out of this. Yeah, you need to be brave about addressing the stranger and about figuring out how naked you can be in terms of your writing and how you can get yourself across to a reader. Uh, on the other hand, there are stylistic moves that may help pull something across the gap. I mean, if you start learning how to create something that the reader, you know, when you start controlling the reader with, uh, with stylistic moves that create audibility and create style, you're going to certainly help the reader. 
to hear something, and that may increase the ability to communicate across it. Because if you talk in your own language that a reader doesn't know what to do with, no matter how much pressure you put on it, you haven't necessarily communicated in the same way. But I like that idea of bravery, entering the gap bravely. It seems like this is a little bit like chicken and the egg, right? Sure. It's sort of like there probably is a voice, there better be a voice, um, that's just going to happen. Mm. You let it happen which is obviously not like a chicken or the egg. Um, but there are ways to attend to it if it doesn't feel like you're grasping yes. something. Yeah, you, you, launch into the, you launch into the fray. And one of the things that's going to happen is, 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 is you're not going to feel like you've gotten enough of yourself into it, you haven't quite said enough, or it's not something that a reader would know what to do with. Well, one of the first things you could do is you could go back through and figure out how to make it more authoritative. Take out the hesitancies, take, take out the hemming and hawing, take out the repetitions or where you've said something. You might also look for those places where there's a gap or a division or a split or an inconsistency in your own work and see if there isn't actually a lot of energy in that and try and figure out, like, oh, maybe I need to let that go and let that develop that split and can I talk in both those voices or all these voices what if I leave that here maybe that's not a mistake you know maybe that is a way to create a a larger dramatic voice that's got complication in it that's got layers in it other thoughts well thanks very much